so basically when we're talking about going deep in meditation this is actually what Byrne, Eric Byrne or Sigmund Freud would say would be deep. Mm-hmm. And that is, is that you have recognized by watching your behavior around your kids and letting them also play the game that you begin to see things that are from your past that took that kind of uh, trickery, as it were, or anchoring so that you could begin to see things that are buried a little deeper in the mind, mm. which Freud refers to as the parent ego state. Mm. And he's generally got it nailed because generally the person we learned this stuff from was one of our parents. Though mm. so not always, mm. but in fact schools, especially Catholic schools, they really do lay on their layer of paint. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I had I had a layer of paint from school. I was speaking to an old school friend the other day and reminding ourselves of what our primary education was like in the early nineties. And it's more like more like something you'd expect from like the fifties. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway. Well, that's because the mentality of the girls that were trained in the 1950s kept that same mentality and to now they're the teachers passing on almost uh, a herd mentality mm-hmm. that it, it's so pervasive that it comes with the herd mm-hmm. and so uh, out, by the way, the various places will have various herds so that there will be kind of microscopic differences. But since we only have a small group of feelings, and they generally come in opposites, then mostly the, what the society does for the kids is wind up putting them in a state to where they're mostly in bad feelings to where we were actually born into having mostly good feelings. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's interesting the kind of things that become motivations for us to come out of the past that we had grown into. Mm-hmm. Um, many, many different examples. One of them I just read recently, I didn't know this, about Isaac Newton. When he was in school, he was not a very good student. And that he was picked on. Mm-hmm. At one time, one of the bullies picked on him too much and he, he wrestled that bull into the ground and won the fight. Mm-hmm. And then he decided to take that newfound fight into the classroom and now we have Sir Isaac Newton. Isn't that amazing? That's what they say that they chased it down to was a fight, that he finally stood up for himself. He did some growing up. He took some bravery. He stopped being the victim and became the lion. Mm-hmm. So we don't now that we can do that in a more sophisticated way, given that we've already kind of accepted in our society that violence is not the path, but we can still get up, what can you call it, gumption? Mm. (laughs) Or get up and go? Chutzpah. (laughs) What's that? Chutzpah. It's what my mom would have said, the Yiddish word. Chutzpah. Chutzpah. (laughs) Yeah. Huevos. <laughs> you know that one? Yeah. Okay. Yes, that's the whole idea is, is that we do have to do some growing up at a very, very deep psychological level. And a lot of us think that we're grown up, but we've only kind of grown up intellectually in a way to protect. Yes. That deeply buried victim that still has to answer to mommy while we're still in diapers or such. Yeah, and it, it's quite a fragile growing up, isn't it, if it doesn't address some of some of that stuff. But it, I just find, yeah, find the, the way that parenting constantly, maybe it's being around young children, it just it constantly 
brings up all of that early life stuff for uh I, I don't I don't think it's just me I think it's quite common with a lot of parents and then either that early life stuff or that bad feelings essentially becomes the norm like you settle into that and you accept it as a appropriate response to the present situation or you manage to to free yourself of it whereas I feel like I'm in some kind of in-between state where I'm I'm like intensely aware of it I'm aware of it when it's not there and I'm aware of the freedom and just kind of like <laughs> un just like the like un what word am I looking for here? Like the unchallenged love of what it is to, to be free of that. Sorry. Um and but also but then hyper aware of it when it's there, when it is proffering these like these, you're right. And these feelings are like pre-verbal. It's like just this sort of like general sense of kind of like grumpy annoyance or this general sense of like impatient something. And then if it builds up in intensity, it gets to a point of just like deep, almost like self hatred almost like in the 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 intensity of like how critical that voice can become if it reaches a certain level in, in that process where and when does sati finally arise enough to say this is painful yeah sati is, is there enough throughout the entire thing like i'm aware of the swings it's not like those swings are occurring without any level of consciousness or awareness. It's like, I, if you if you suddenly appeared in the room, I would be able to say, hi, Demaratu, this, like, this is what's going on. Do you know what I mean? It's not like they take me, you know, if we're comparing it to meditation, it's like, uh, you know, there's, there's like distractions, but you're still with the breath as opposed to like a complete, um, you know, something that completely takes you away from, no, okay, so can we describe that down to the few words of I used to not see it, yeah. now I see it, and even a little bit of wallowing in it, Yeah. but I, I can't get right out of it, or I don't get right out of it. Yeah, although, yeah, see what's interesting as well is something like the last three weeks, basically the last three weeks I've been completely full-time parenting. It's like the summer holidays, so kids are not in school, I'm not in school. Um, and also... It could have been one of the kids, as a matter of attitude. I know, I know, I know. And at times I have been, at times I have you been. You could have let that adorable seven-year-old be the parent in the crowd, let her do it her way. Yeah. At t as I said, like, there's, there's a lot of times where that is the case, but that, that contrast almost makes it starker. Do you know what I mean? Like... <laughs> and I yes, it, I do. That's why I recommended it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I suppose normally, like no, normal, my normal parenting, it's like I see my kids every day, but I'll see them if I'm with them in the evening. I'll normally have some of the more like more space in the morning, or if I'm with them in the morning, I might have more time in the evening. You know, I've discussed with you my kind of family situation. So it's like I get normally there's a lot of space. So normally, I suppose you don't have the same. There's something about the kind of like continual nature of pair of the parenting that I've been doing over the last few weeks, which means that there's no space to kind of get away from these feelings. So it's like you have to go deep you're kind of going deeper through them and it brings up more stuff more intensely. Um, and Well, it, I wouldn't use the word intense, you see. That's your standard way of looking at it <laughs> or uh, describing it. Let us say that it at least gets up to the level of where you can see it. Mm. That the volume level doesn't have to go all the way to blaring, blasting. It can just be up to um, noticeable. Yeah. Or it doesn't have to be a bright, blinding light. It can just be, you know, <laughs> a, what they call international orange or something. Yeah. Um, 
But it's interesting, isn't it? It's like so think about it like that. The intensity. Yeah. When stuff comes up like that, it feels like uh, that that the volume is coming up. But we're now no longer in the position of being the victim, which is overwhelming. Okay, the victim is the one who makes everything really big. Mm. But as the winner, it whatever it is, it's small enough to be able to be handled. Mm. And so in a way, we're thinking about things from a much more reality-based situation rather than from this, uh, it's intense. <laughs> you know, no, it's not intense. <laughs> That's just being grandiose. But we do that often. It's part of our language. Mm. Some people just move from one grandiose word to the next. Mm. Sometimes they do their hands like this when they're doing that. <laughs> but anyway, we don't need to go down to the rat hole of politics, but just recognize that much of our language has to do with um, grandiosity is the word. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what we're trying to do is to, we're trying to convey a feeling, but feeling generally doesn't have any language other than amplitude. And so our, our, so we have to add that amplitude in it. Once we give the defining word, like uh, depression, you can't just say I'm depressed or depression. No, you've got to do that amplification. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm really depressed. Oh, it's so, you know, we've mm-hmm. got to add the intensity that is almost always grandiosity. Mm-hmm. Now, we learned that from our culture. You learned that, in fact, from your mama, just like we learned all of the other stuff about grand. And so I thought I'd throw this one in there, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that we can begin to listen to the language that we use so that we can be much more clear about making things really big when in fact they're not. Because if they're really big, then we can't deal with them. Mm-hmm. So that, that makes this whole issue a big deal as to whether or not you can, are you a winner or a loser? What's your attitude about this? Mm-hmm. A lot a, of it has, go ahead. On a much smaller scale, you're right. Like big, big things like, depression or like anxiety or whatever the kind of labels that make something into a very big thing are actually just lots of very small subtle passing feelings in the mind almost always these feelings and uh nickels and kicks in the butt are not even to the level of being conscious if they were they would be much easier to see mm. but in fact are often pre-verbal and therefore subconscious. They don't rise up to the level of consciousness. An example of that is, is that someone can go get their car keys and dry, and get into the car and drive away and do not even know why, other than deep inside there's a vague sense of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Now that's crazy. Mm. that that kind of behavior happens. But meanwhile, along the way from the getting of the keys and getting into the car and driving away, there are thoughts that also go along with that in the sense of, in order to feel better, I need something. Perhaps I can go shopping. And then what happens is that people go shopping, they become interested in things, the anxiety kind of goes away, which means now it's not even at a subconscious level. Is completely uh, unconscious. They don't know it's there. They feel relieved, and so now they become addicted to shopping. It's mm-hmm. a really weird world as human mind. <laughs> mm-hmm. But if we can wake up to the fact that we're driven by this very, very tiny, low-level anxiety, mm-hmm. and the idea is to rid ourselves of that. Mm-hmm. What's more? Yeah, that I th- it, that it's interesting. Just like the the meditation practice, just puts you 
you become so much more familiar with those like micro movements of mind um, that I feel like it's interesting I feel like maybe six months ago I was coming to you going like oh my gosh I'm I'm happy sometimes <laughs> <laughs> seeing seeing these moments of like you know being it being much more aware of these moments of like just ease and happiness and kind of flow and uh and that and that was something that was becoming really aware of and i feel like for the last few months i've been coming to you going oh my god sometimes i'm miserable (laughs) (laughs) but see now you're taking that from a position of the winner that's the winner's perch yeah because you used to be in it so much that that was normal. Now you're saying, oh, my God, look at that. That's exactly what we want to practice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the exact same thing as, aha, uh-huh, I see you, Mara. Yeah. And now you're beginning to see things at a much more subtle level. But they're still there. Yeah. And in fact... Generally, what happens is is not that um, as we get sharper, we don't uncover more and more, but we do dig down and catch a few things and take them through their threads down to the bottom. Mm. Okay, and so grumpy would be one of the things that you're going to take down to the bottom mm-hmm. and fear. There's another one that you'll take down to the bottom, okay? And you'll get right down to the, where's the source of this loser's attitude that actually is based and bound in fear and brings on anxiety and doubts and all of that kind of stuff. Mm. And so when we dig down to that level, uh, in the sense of you can, ca- you can catch it as it begins, you can say, wait a minute, I got you now. Uh-huh, I really do see this, this stuff right at the very bottom, down to the conceit and the anxiety itself, so that you can take a deep breath and breathe that anxiety out within a, one or two, three breaths. Mm. Be free from it again. But it's now, true, breathing, but you're saying about like following it in and also breathing it out. And that's sometimes the, the latter's emphasized, isn't it? And the first isn't. But how how does one do the first where you're not in a way where you're not kind of um giving too much reality to those feelings you know what i mean because i think that there's how do you do that basically that process that you just described where you're both like you're both allowing those you're you're recognizing the reality that those feelings exist that there are these subtle movements of mind that have these flavors of fear and aversion and all this stuff how do you how do you this is the skill of investigation Mm. that you're asking about yeah how do i develop that skill of investigation the investigative skill is in fact deeply tied to the waking up Mm. because you cannot do do investigation until you're awake enough to do it All right. And the wake, the wakier we are, the sharper we are, then the better our investigation. Mm. That's to do with sort of with the non-attaching to those feelings as me and mine, right? Because the more awake we are in that moment, the less we're likely to identify with those feelings and therefore they well, can... Actually, waking up to see that identification... Yeah. An example would be saying, I am angry. And then we wake up and we say, uh huh, I see the anger, but that separates us from that anger. Okay. This is actually a kind of a disjointing experience in the sense that uh, understanding self is, I am not my feelings. Mm hmm. Okay, that's a basic premise of the Buddha. Mm. You are not your feelings, which means when anger comes, you are not the anger. And yet that's a common mistake that's made. People, it's, it's done in our language constantly. I'm angry. 
That's another one of these areas where there's like this huge contrast at the moment in my life and in my like sort of mental awareness is that there are, you know, the times when there is just so much space and then times when, like what you said about anger, when you attach onto it, when it becomes me and when it becomes mine, there's no space there. You are so trapped in like this tiny little angry box. It's a hell. Yeah. It's a prison. But that, and that, that process of kind of like, I'm not my feelings is one of kind of like opening up to a much more spacious mental existence, right? And that's like what a, a lot of the practice is about. Exactly. So, aha, uh -huh, I see you feeling. Yeah. I see that I have been trapped to it, but in fact, I am not the anger. The anger and I are separate. Which is basically just another way that when we begin to whittle down the way of who I am in the sense of peeling off anger and then we peel off sadness and peel off all the bad feelings, then we can get down to peel off the good feelings too and you wind up there really is nothing much left. Mm. Except, what is left is a process. Mm. And that when we went through that process, we thought that there was an I going through the process. <clears throat> no, it was just one process after another. Mm. That we're a biological human... Uh, gosh, I think we'd be smarter if we were artificial intelligence. We're the natural intelligence, the stuff that don't work too well. <laughs> mm. Why would I say that? And the answer is, well, look at how you feel. And that answers it. If we, if our natural intelligence was in fact as good as we would think it would be, then everyone would go around happily. Yeah, that's what I said before. It feels like seeing, seeing, seeing how though that voice in the head, how, how inappropriately non-responsive it is to like the present moment, but how it's kind of like frequently it's like this very is trapping you in a kind of past and. You know, you, it does lead to conclusion when you start looking at the mechanisms of suffering and you start really seeing it in your life, you do conclusions like there's something a bit broken here. Like there's something that's like, if this was a machine that I had bought, I'd be like, hey, this, <laughs> this isn't working. Right, we need to change <laughs> gears here. <laughs> Two or three times a day, it just shuts down and goes red or, you know, whatever it might be. It's like it's not working. Actually, the analogy of in the wrong gear tends to work mm. because often I see Tam is uh, she's in too high a gear, she's in traffic, and now the engine is is uh, being strained because mm. she's in too high a gear. Gosh, what an analogy! That's I mean that's it. You know, all we have to do is just change gears, and neutral sounds good to me. Mm. <laughs> It's interesting, this thing about feelings um, in the like, wider context of the of Buddhist teachings. I've been reading um, Under the Bodhi Tree. Um, yes. And... Under the Bodhi Tree. Yeah, so the, the, the Buddha's teachings on dependent arising rather than heartwood of the Bodhi tree, which is the Buddha's teachings on emptiness. Oh, this is the one that was published in 2017. Right. Uh, uh, shall I grab my copy of it and I can, let's check. Yeah. Yeah. Can you turn that down? 
không một mình It's gone walkabout. Sorry about that. But no, it's um. This is the 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 other one. The this is the heart one. Yes, I know. But the no, the one I've been reading is yeah. It's under the Bodhi tree, and it's. I think it's like subtitled, um, the Buddha's teachings on, uh, dependent, arising. Okay. Um, but it talks there about how ultimately, you know, about ultimately it is about getting beyond liking some feelings and not liking other feelings, how that is the kind of key to, to breaking the kind of samsaric wheel of suffering that Paticca Samupada describes. And that ultimately, if we, if we can feel feelings without clinging to them or kind of rejecting them without taking an aversion like that's the kind of freedom right mm -hmm. so in terms of like these feelings that we want and that we practice developing in say the jhanas um and and in our attitude to meditation and, and in the way we meditate versus these feelings that carry all this kind of like fear and misery with them. I don't really know where I'm going with this. It's almost like, do we, is it like a two, like two separate prongs which are kind of different? There's like the kind of practice end, which is all about developing, laying down kind of new pathways that promote good feeling and seeing through the old pathways where there's this kind of miserable feeling and, and getting better and better and more practiced at at letting them go and not getting so entrapped in them so that's kind of like one of the prongs of, of the buddha's teaching and then the other prong is to actually have equanimity bless you with all of it <laughs> well so it seems, it seems like they're, they're slightly two different things that is my understanding which isn't uh mutually exclusive like you know a two-pronged approach is good right like it's coming at it from several angles but is that understanding right or am i misunderstanding um Possibly the easy way to answer that is is, because, is more, not so much one or the other, but how can both be a benefit so they yeah. become toys to play with? If you find that they're interfering, then note that. Yeah. No, I don't see any, um, any dissonance between those two ways of thinking about it, but I suppose just kind of... I don't know how to kind of hold them. Here's a question for you. Mm. Did uh, in this book, did uh, do ever come across the phrase mindfulness at the point of contact? Yes. That's the key. Yeah. All right. Why is that? Because if we are mindful that's a by the way a fairly sophisticated place to be it's not mm. the most advanced but it's fairly sophisticated because we are watching feelings as they arise we're actually watching real feelings and not the results of the feelings yeah the result of the feeling is generally what we would call emotions yeah okay like the question is um 
which came first, the chicken or the egg? The feeling is the egg, and the emotion is the chicken. But is it, isn't mindfulness at the point of contact even one step before then? Because it, it, it's, it's, if it's mindful at contact, then... You're seeing what the mind is doing that arises this stuff, okay? So the yeah. contact is contact of what? What the mind is doing. Yeah. Okay. And so salayatana, or what we create out of the existence of in this moment, what we're creating, the mess that we're making now, impacts us or contacts us. If we're there for that, then we will be aware at these little feelings that yeah. come up. Okay, so one of three kinds. Yeah. And this these feelings can either be wise or not wise. Mm -hmm. But if they are wise, then because they are wise, we can do with them what we please, and so it's really only one kind of wise. So there's only four kinds of feelings. This is kind mm -hmm. of confusing. In fact, we'll look into that for just a moment now that you're mentioning it. An unwise feeling of liking mm -hmm. will deteriorate into I want it and I've got to have it. Mm -hmm. A feeling of not liking it can deteriorate into being grumpy about it. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Because we're in the habit of it. Mm. Okay, so if grumpy is going to be the feeling or the outcome, that meant that when we were there mindful at the point of contact and this feeling of not liking comes up, that means we can control it so that it doesn't resort to grumpy, which is the normal way that it does. Mm. Now, the whole point that we're making with uh, Patitya Samupada in the sense of the Sankara is that the grumpy was part of the mixture of the Sankara so that when perception was making sense out of this present moment, it dug up a little grumpy and put it into the picture so that when the picture contacts us and we have the un, uh, but not liking feeling, it grows immediately into grumpy. Mm -hmm. That's the way that the whole process works. Because there's so, no mindfulness at that point of contact. Point of contact. Yeah, is exactly. It, this is like the instructions. I always, I don't know how you say this word, but B A H I Y A, the Baya Sutta, where it's the one with the Baya. Yeah. Say again. The Baya, B A H I Y A, Sutta, where it's the instructions that says, you know, in the seeing, let there just be the seen; in the hearing, let there just be the hearing; in the cognizing, let there just be the cognizing. Is that it's yes, all I know that too. Where did you run across that one? Uh, well, I've run across that one, do you know, several times, and it's never really made sense to me until about two months ago when I came across it. And, and I, it became, it, I used it as a kind of guidance for like off cushion practice. And I found it really rich. It was just like throughout the day, try as far as possible to just be with seeing, be with hearing be with thinking or sort of see the cognizing taking place. And it for a couple of weeks, it felt like that we were talking about before about that spaciousness. It felt like I was walking in a much more spacious interior universe. And it was actually, it was, it was amazing. Um, somehow in the last, this was maybe about eight weeks ago, Somehow in the last few weeks, I feel like I've, uh, that spaciousness has not been, I haven't been as skillful in accessing that spaciousness. But I suppose what that, when he's saying with the seeing, let there just be the seeing, with the cognizing, let there just be the cognizing, that is mindfulness at the point of contact, isn't it? That's the same thing. Or am I... Actually, no. Okay. <laughs> because what you're talking about there is actually a little bit earlier in the that microsecond of the mind okay and let's back up to it in the sense that the salayatana that impacts us is after perception okay. has tried to make sense out of it when we allow the seeing to just be the seeing it's not uh the pro it, it, that means that there's very little or no processing done 
so as to make up a story about what we see. Yeah. It's okay, it's almost like seeing this not recognizing. Okay, cognizing is not recognizing, because recognizing means now we're playing the story or we're pulling up out of the past to recognize it. Mm. Okay, so when we recognize something, that's what we normally want to do. We are actually, if there's a way of saying it, humans are addicted to being able to recognize what they see. Mm. Yeah, that's evolutionary... Um... Because if you don't know what you're seeing, then you are in danger. Mm. Okay, so in terms of how those two... In that way, you have to get... If you go to the end of the sutra, you'll begin to understand why, if one is going to practice this, they need to be in a safe environment. Mm. Why? Because this is before fear arises because we're just seeing what it is. So when Baddadi saw that, that cow, he did not see the danger in that cow, even if the cow warned him of danger, he couldn't see the danger because he wasn't paying attention to that part of the mind in the moment. Mm. Okay? So this kind of practice is, uh, let us say, is only really possible on the cushion. This guy would be pretty remarkable if he could walk around in that kind of state. See, okay. And in fact, we don't even know that for sure. We don't even know the circumstances. All we know that is the cow killed him, and I assume that he walked up to the cow. But I imagine that he could have just been sitting there and he wouldn't get up when the cow wanted to eat the grass under his butt. <laughs> I don't know what. I just don't know the story. But we do know that his mind was in a condition so that he could not see the danger. Mm -hmm. And so we have to be in a state, like in the back of the watt, closed off, mm -hmm. in the cookie, uh, in a safe place, in an environment where we can uh, begin to experience with that kind of stuff. So what do you think then, well, what, what I took from it then was, was possibly then different from what it actually meant, but it, it still, it resulted in a very <laughs> nice off-cushion practice, which was just to try and be as much with the senses as possible and below. Oh, it's pleasant. Yeah. I mean, it's the, it's the best way that I know to be here now. But in fact, what happens is, is that when we stop grabbing an object and then processing it and recognizing it, that we bypass that, which is basically means that we can pay more attention to the input itself and just allow the input to come. Mm -hmm. The input then starts to flood in because there's so much input because we're not closing the door so we can process anything. We're just allowing a whole lot of input to come in. And which then is that... actually quite mar marvelous. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And at that point, I suppose you're not, in, when you're in that sort of state, you're not... You're not clinging to it or having any aversion to it. You're just opening up to it. And there's just that kind of quite flowing, energetic sense of... Almost recognizing system. it and telling yourself the story that you recognize it is enough to pull you out of it. Yeah. The first couple of times. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. You yeah. To get into that state and then maintaining it, that's, that's the trick. Yeah. Yeah. So on Petitia, in Petitia Samupada then, what, what link would that be? That would be... We're talking about the, uh, the distinction and the combination between step three and step four of Sanya and Nama Rupa. Okay, so the sensory input and then the giving name and form to it. Is that mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Right. So we're beginning to shut down the name and form. Yeah. Right? We don't need that anymore. We're just taking input and more input and input and not doing a whole lot of processing. Mm -hmm. And because we're not a pro doing a whole lot of processing, we're not being impacted in the way that we would be if we were processing and coming up with something understandable. Mm 
it's interesting. So in, that, in a way, it's almost overwhelming. And so yeah. the predominant feeling is the predominant feeling of confusion or marvel if you allow the joy as a thread. Yeah. But that's what I, I uh, meditation and the way that you encourage your students to kind of apply lessons learned in meditation to general life predisposes you to be in that moment with a lot of joy right because if you can be in that so but in so in that moment you are you are free of that cycle of suffering you have you have you've cut the mechanism off say again there's several i say you've cut the primary mechanism off yeah the secondary mechanism is once we feel something but the question is, well, how did we wind up feeling that way? The answer is we processed ourselves into it. Mm. But it's interesting, but you, it's almost to go back to gears in a car, right? Like sometimes you can be in that, as you said, between step three and four, between sensory input and, and name and form. And you can, you can, you can make that your, your practice to, to be in that moment throughout your day as often as you remember or as often as appropriate, right? Because you can't, be in that place all the time there are no no most people can only visit it occasionally but wow is it nice when they do but yeah it can be developed yes it can be developed so that you could you could visit it like on a daily basis right like you could you could pop in there a dozen or so or more times a day if you were in the habit of it um, if you remember if you remember, yeah. See, it was interesting. As I said, there was this couple of weeks towards the end of term where it just felt so easy to get into that place, like all these little micro moments throughout the day. But then the question is, so, but to go back to like gears in a car, it's like that's an appropriate gear to allow yourself to kind of come into at certain moments. But then in other moments, um, you need to... to you need to do all of the things between Nama Rupa and contact. And so you need to find a way of having mindfulness at the point of contact for the times when you can't have mindfulness at the point of sensory input. All right. Um, one of the values of being able uh, to get into this state, uh, the lingering value, has to do not just with the skill development, but the understanding, really deep understanding of <clears throat> what is the thread or the source of dukkha is in the sankara. And if we don't process the old sankara, we're not going to wind up with new dukkha. Mm. <clears throat> and so we stop using that and we start using a more appropriate sankara. And we can, in fact, flush our toilet. Mm. This is the thing I was talking about, the multiple prongs, like there are really, it, the, 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 the system has so many angles, right? Like you can approach this moment in this way, but sometimes you can't do that. So you need to figure out what to do when this does come up, because sometimes, because you can't, you know, somebody might have discovered, you know, that. That, that, that sounds thing. like budding wisdom to me. <laughs> Yeah. to put things together, to notice the connections, to begin to recognize that things really are interconnected in such a marvelous way. I mm. could have not figured all of this out. Mm. But I do know that whatever it took, it didn't take a god to figure it out. Because mm. it's unfigure outable. <laughs> but it is quite enjoyable. Hmm. Well, I mean, really, that book does just um, hit at home just what a kind of incredible teaching to teach the Samuppada is, and it's and this yes. conversation highlighting that fact that like there are all those different parts um, at which you can sever the links that lead to suffering but that some of them are going to be appropriate like for you know a lesser a lesser buddha could have come up with like how you can and in fact you know it's interesting it's um 
I'm, I, I've had to write an essay for my yoga teacher training and I've had to like compare Tantra, Patanjali and, uh, and the Buddha's teachings. It's a very small essay. It was quite frustrating actually almost how brief it had to be. But in Patanjali, it's, it's almost like um, it's basically absorption. Like the, the, the eight limbs of yoga that, that Patanjali taught in the Yoga Sutras, which is very heavily influenced by teachings from Buddhism as well. But like it, it all leads to right concentration, if you will. It all leads to these states of samadhi. I don't know how familiar you are with the Yoga Sutras, but um, it's almost like that's it. There's no wisdom beyond that almost. It's like the ultimate aim is to reach a state of meditative absorption where due to how absorbed you are, you're free of suffering. But it's a very limited type of freedom, it seems to me, because it's essentially dependent on you living the life of a of a hermit, you know, a like a cave yogi. Who I ask that to students on a regular basis. Do you want to become a hermit? Yeah. Or do you want to have a really enjoyable lifestyle the way that you know how? This yeah. The best of your ability. And but it's almost much, always. It's interesting. Nobody it's wants easier to be a to hermit. Be, it's they almost always people say what they don't want to be a hermit they don't want to be a hermit but it's, it's much easier in some ways like it's a much like a... well that's the whole point is the easy way out if you need a lot of time then get away from it all yeah and in asia but not just asia but worldwide societies always will support the occasional hermit yeah. The one who does drop out. Yeah. Because they can but they can essentially live in that state, right? That, that like pre pro well, No, they could live in the state of, of the Buddha also. They don't have to live in that state. But let's investigate that because you've brought up an important point about and you use the word absorption. I was listening to hear what you would have to say because I want I'm looking for a key word. All right. The key words that I'm looking for is, uh, in quotations, neither perception nor non-perception. Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard that expression before? Yeah, it describes, uh, well, if I say it describes... We've been talking about it for the past 10 minutes. Yeah. It, well, it describes one of the formless jhanas, doesn't it? When you use it in that context, yes. But we're talking about it directly mm. in the sense and the way that we can do that is, in fact, by making sure, because we've got such a powerful sati, is to not allow our sensory input to take object, to not latch on anything, to let the eyes be in a gaze and stay mm. in a gaze. Don't let the eyes attach to an object which generally means the gaze is going to keep moving so as to not attach to any object. Mm. All right? By not allowing the mind to attach, and I'm talking about a training process in that regard. By not allowing the mind to attach to anything in that way, that means that we're now kind of decoupling the strong, strong connection between consciousness and perception. Mm. Everything that I perceive, uh, excuse me, everything that I conceive or uh, uh, have as an input, the consciousness, the input has to always be given to the process so it can be processed to be put into state of understanding rather than merely left as an item of input. Mm -hmm. So the neither perception nor non-perception that's mentioned as the quality of the fourth jhana means that we only have enough perception to know that we're not going to, or we're beginning to understand this connection between consciousness and perception. Mm -hmm. And then the last stage of nothingness is when we've got the thing completely separated and we can be there with everything because we've got all of this sensory input coming, but there's nothing of it of, mm -hmm. except just a flood and a more flood and more flood mm. of, of 
but is is not uh, perceiving the flood, is merely being caught in it because perception can be shut down. Mm-hmm. But along the way with that, we have to go into what we mean by, you see, the, the wrong t- translation of these words. One is the word infinite in the sense of infinite space or infinite consciousness. The Buddha don't know no division by zero. He didn't understand the concept of infinite. Therefore, that should not be a word a translator would use. Mm-hmm. The right kind of word to use is boundless, and then we begin to understand that, um, begin to understand the boundaries in the sense of the boundaries of the body. Because mm-hmm. when you get into those perceptions where the perceptions get really lightweight and loose, the feeling of the body begins to get loosened from gravity so that we feel like we're flying or floating. Yes. Or we like that we're 60 feet tall, yes. that there is an unbinding yeah. uh, of the body. That's at that, like uh, the signlessness, right? It's like you're letting go of the sign of the body that you have in your mind. And once you let that go, then it no longer conforms to the kind of strict parameters. Uh, and, that become, and the body becomes more like just a shimmering presence. Mm-hmm. So the other one they call infinite consciousness, no, what we're actually looking at is we're looking at the boundaries and the breaking down of the boundaries around consciousness so that we can see the distinction between perception and consciousness. Mm-hmm. One does not need to be in the fourth jhana to fully understand that, but if you actually are in the first jhana, it will be quite striking. Mm-hmm. But you can be in the fourth jhana and do not understand what's going on. And now all the time you've done to waste to get into the fourth jhana is in fact a waste of time because you don't even know what you're doing when you get there. And you're not learning the lesson, right? That... And you're not learning the lesson. Yeah. That in fact most of the lessons to be learned are learned in the first jhana because that's when the mind can make the connection, see the things make sense out of them. So this is actually too deep into the process. We need, in fact, the right way is mindfulness at the point of contact. So it's interesting. Is that why you emphasize first challenge so much is because it actually allows you to have mindfulness at the point of contact with the feelings. Whereas if you're going deep, if you're going kind of deeper in into the jhanas you're in on Paticca Samupada you're 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 very early you're very early in the process that's where you're playing and therefore in real life when something triggers you those skills are, are harder to draw upon because you're already beyond them in the circle of Paticca Samupada so you need to have something that helps you with the feeling and with the contact Basically, when we get the mind to where it's fast enough and sharp enough that we can be really in the here now with the senses without doing a whole lot of processing, that means that the skills and the underlying skills will be more more useful and more valuable and contextually possible when we need them the most. Mm-hmm. Back to old Murphy's Law. Mm-hmm. Okay, anything that can go wrong will go wrong, and it'll go wrong at the worst possible moment. For us, what is the worst thing that can go wrong is something happened and we weren't there for it. We didn't wake up. We let it roll too long before we could see that this thing is rolling in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. And then we wake up. It's interesting. I keep turning around, don't I, looking at that image? Because it's interesting the way that they have, you know, the 12 links of dependent arising and they have it around the outside of the the six realms of samsaric existence. Because And that is that's a really relevant thing to have next to each other, isn't it? Because it's like if you do not catch this process, if you do not break the links of this kind of process mm-hmm. of things about suffering you will you know welcome to hungry ghosts welcome to <laughs> uh hell realm welcome to animal realm right and that uh, we get into those woeful states uh in the path of paticca samupada 
almost immediately we begin that process once clinging is there. Okay. Mm-hmm. Once the tendency to grumpy is there, now grumpy becomes a hell when you can't get out of it mm-hmm. for the moment. It's an unendurable place. Mm-hmm. And then when the kid says daddy's being grumpy or whatever the uh, the thing is, and you wake you know, they're right. Wow, I can wake up to this. Mm-hmm. But until then, grumpy was running in Grumpyville. That's and that uh, we could call that a kind of a hell, mm-hmm. because you were not comfortable in that state, and nobody else was around you either. So you were creating a hell, and once you wake up, you can in fact come out of it. Mm-hmm. The next nine moment is time to make a change. But the original time before grumpy was when something happened and you didn't like it. That's what, yeah, that's, that's the contact, right? That's like you, the cognitive processes that have gone from sensory input to processing Sankara, which deliver uh, this present moment to your, your, your mind at that, that's the contact. If you will, the mind's eye. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, to the mind's projector in a way. <laughs> yeah. So that is something happened in that moment. Something there was that that contact produced a feeling of like craving or aversion. And and if one's not mindful of that, that's when feeling leads to all the rest. Well, the craving and aversion actually is a little late. That the right place to be there, the sweet spot, is when you recognize a feeling. When you see something and you don't like it, immediately recognize, I don't like that. Yeah. Because now you have some a chance to do with it. An example is you haven't opened your mouth and yelled yet. See, I, I, I'm not a big yeller. It does tend to be more internal than that, which isn't necessarily better. But it, well, it, it doesn't mean who you're yelling at, but you're yelling at something. Yeah, <laughs> I don't uh, like this. Yeah, the message. So th- that's what it is about. It's about recognizing, and even you could just like inwardly say, "I don't like this," and then use that not as an opportunity to get caught up in the not liking use that as an opportunity to start investigating exactly to wake up that's our wake up call i don't like it but it's interesting it's like it's it's like unless you're kind of like mindful and truthful and aware with yourself at that moment to say like oh i don't i don't like the way i don't i don't like something here if you don't recognize that then there's no hope right you are sucked in so that is like for like the four noble truths, like the primacy of that, like this is suffering, right? Like mm-hmm. the primacy. Exactly. Yeah. But then ironically, but then it's like if you catch it though, then it's not. It doesn't have to turn into suffering. It's just like this Precisely. is that, that's the key that makes Anapanasati so not just possible, but so darned easy to understand. Anapanasati becomes so easy to understand when we factor in that part about Paticca Samapada at the point of contact, that's where we need mindfulness. That's our sati point, Mm. to wake up to how we feel. Mm. This brand new little feeling that just arised. And so that's why we practice Anapanasati, but we want to practice it from the position of being comfortable, relaxed, secure, in that really, really good state, so when these little feelings arise, we can see them as these tiny little feelings of liking and not liking. So the next time that one kid hits another, and you see it, you instead see, I don't like what I just saw. Mm-hmm. And now you can deal with, I don't like it, but most people don't. They don't make that connection. So now they go try to deal with one kid hitting another. Where in fact, the real issue is, I don't like one kid hitting another. Mm-hmm. And then that's when you, 
you can apply some wisdom because you don't have to reject that whole it's not about going it's not about it's not about uh, removing yourself from 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 life and and say, well, I don't like it, but I'm not going to get involved because I don't want to perpetrate. I didn't go to that place. Yeah, I didn't get into because that would be a, a rule that you would have. Yeah, a better thing to do would be, I don't like it. Let's look at what's going on. Yeah, Let's figure this out. Yeah, rather than rather than clinging to that feeling that's that's the that's the mm -hmm. that's the link isn't it like that if you can observe that feeling and there's mindfulness there you don't have to to cling to it in a way that you unwittingly put yourself through that entire uh-huh you can burst right out in laughter in the sense of saying ha i saw that mm. i saw what you did Okay, which is a much better way of saying it is uh, how dare you or go rush into the room and maybe drag your arm in the air like you're going to slug something or someone or all of that kind of behavior that we uh, is learned behavior because that's how it happened when we were kids. Now when we can wake up to that fact that I don't like what the kids are doing, now I can investigate and figure out something that's really joyful, really playful, really interested, something to get them out of their squabble, rather than joining their squabble, which is what most parents do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Gosh, it's so interesting, isn't it? It's like, it's actually so down to earth. It's just like so nitty gritty of of human existence so i think so it, it was what i found i think so uh rewarding from our conversations over the last year it's just like realizing that you know when you first encounter something like paticha sam and Padre, it's just like it sounds so esoteric it sounds so you know it's kind of like it, it seems like there's something kind of like marvelous but transcendental about it or something whereas actually it's just like coming to realize actually it's just like these these minutiae these like nitty gritty moments of existence as a human being that if that's very very well said that's very well said it is certainly not magical but look at that tonka behind you and you can see that that was written in a magical frame of reference Mm, but we can apply it to a very real frame of reference and it can be very if we if we've got the key to unlock that magical door so that we can go into the reality behind it yeah and that's what Bhikkhu buddha das is famous for yeah he's really on to that he's written so many books on patita samupada <laughs> most of them haven't been translated so are not written, but he just spoke on it. Yes. It's a favorite topic. And so the recording. And so uh, the BIA library has all of that stuff in Thai. Eventually, if we have enough people uh, interested in it. And right now, we basically have two, let us maybe say two and a half translators. Yeah. That are working on it. The one who's doing the most is actually uh, Achan Damavitu, who is uh, the one who... I think wrote the book that you're talking about, or is that Santicaro's book? You don't know because you don't have the book. Santicaro. Yes, okay. That's the one that was 2017. Since then, Achan has yet another book on Petitu Samapada that's out, but it's kind of a little booklet, a, a pamphlet, but it's good. Um, yeah, it's interesting. They're all published by, are they all, they're all published by Wisdom. Wisdom Publications, which is the Tree Ratna publishing thing, isn't it? I know there's a lot of consternation as to why the uh, Bhikkhu Itapanyu archives got mixed up with uh, Wisdom Publications, but they did somehow or another. Wow. But all of Bhikkhu Buddha Das's stuff is available in this in, that is in English is on the web. Yeah. Under BIA, I think BIA.org. I remember you sent me a link to that, yeah, a while ago. Um, I mean, Wisdom Publications, they publish loads of good books. Like, they're, 
they're a good Buddhist publishing house. It just happens May to be. the Dharma <laughs> roll out. Maybe <laughs> 20 cents a word. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, yeah. One, one thing. I, thanks so much for our conversation today. It's been really helpful. Um, one thing I'm going to speak to you about next time. I'm doing, I have a week. I'm going to be going to, um, to do like a retreat, but very, but self-led solo retreat in the countryside for a week. Okay. I'd love to, um, pick your brain and experience, uh, about that a little All bit. All right. Give me a call and we'll put a retreat together. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much, Damaratu. Go well. Speak soon. Matt, you're a joy. Good to see you making good progress. Thanks, Damaratu. Take care. Okay.